February 26th issue um, in 1974 of Insight, a story was told, uh, was written about a, a man named Major William Martin, a British subject, actually, who is buried in the southern coast of Spain. And uh, Marlin never knew the great co contribution that he made to the Allied success in the Second World War, especially in Sicily, because he died of pneumonia in the foggy dampness of England before he ever saw the battlefront. The Allies had invaded North Africa. The next logical step was Sicily. And knowing the Germans had calculated this, the Allies determined to outfox them. So one dark night, an Allied submarine came to the surface just off the coast of Spain, put Martin's body out to sea in a rubber raft with an oar. And in his pocket were secret documents indicating the Allied forces would strike next in Greece and Sardinia. Major Marlin's body washed ashore and Axis intelligence oper operative found him. Thinking he had crashed at sea, they passed the secret documents through Axis hands all the way to Hitler's headquarters. And so while Allied forces moved towards Sicily, thousands and thousands of German troops moved on to Greece and Sardinia where the battle wasn't raging. Satan works with more cunning than even the Allied plan. Getting us to fight many temptations in places where the battle actually isn't. And often temptations hurt us most where we expect them least. Now I begin with this true story because it's my intent over the next few weeks to preach a little short series of messages designed to remind us of the ministry to which Jesus was called and how important it is for us as his body, the church, to be similarly engaged in the work that he has charged us with to fulfill until he comes. However, before Jesus embarked on that mission that the Father had called him to, he underwent a season of incredible preparation which included a time of intense personal temptation. Understanding that is extremely important and essential to our equipping as we undertake the urgent commission that Christ has left us with to make disciples. There are two people who want you today. Two people, the Savior and the enemy. Satan wants you. The sad truth is that Satan already has the non-believing world in his subtle control. All you need to do is read 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 to find out that fact. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I need to remind you, urgently remind you, that Satan also desires to have you as well. Now, while we can rest securely on the fact that he can never again lay claim to a true believer's soul because of his or her blood-bought status in Christ, he wants nevertheless desperately to tear Christ's followers apart in order to render them inoperable. Make no mistake about it, even though you may be a Christian, Satan still wants you. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 22, if you would. And Verse 31, and although this is not our text for today, our main text, we need to begin here. 
Luke 22 and verse 31. Why do I begin here? Well, it's because I want you to be familiar with two very significant characteristics about our enemy. The first thing I want you to notice is in this text is, is this, and that's Satan's desire. Verse 31, the first part of the verse. Simon, Simon, Jesus said, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Okay? Satan's desire. Luke uses a strong word here indicating that Satan earnestly desires. That's what basically we're talking about here when he said demanded permission. He's basically earnestly desiring to ruin Peter. And not only Peter, but all the disciples. The first you here, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. That's a plural. It means Satan desires to sift all of you like wheat. Why? Satan wants to shake every active follower and proclaimer of the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior so violently that we lose our voice, that we lose our assurance of faith, that we begin to doubt God, that we begin to abandon his will for our lives, and that obviously the result is we lose our impact on the world around us. That's Satan's desire. Even though he knows he can't have us, he certainly can disable, distract, and debilitate us and therefore disrupt the accomplishment of God's kingdom purposes on this earth. The next thing I want you to notice is Satan's design. Second part of that verse. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan knows that although he may not have a chance at Peter's soul, he certainly could discredit his status in the eyes of others. So his design is to sift him as wheat. The image pictures violent, sharp, shaking. Now, it was one thing to grow grain in the field, but it was also took a lot of work after the grain was grown to get it ready to grind into flour. For thousands of years, farmers used three base, a basic three-part system of threshing, winnowing, and using a sieve to get the grain to the point where it could be ground into flour. Okay, that's how wheat was separated from chaff and pebbles. Grain was shaken violently in a sieve, and the grain remained in the sieve. The dust was blown off. And in other words, there was a separation that took place through violent shaking. However, if we read in Amos, in the Old Testament, chapter 9, verse 9, the Word of God says, For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve but not a kernel will fall to the ground. What does that mean? What's he getting at there? Well, sieving separates the grain from the pebbles, but both of them stay in the sieve. That's the final fine-tuning process. The message in Amos is a subtle but very profound one. Even in God's judgment upon Israel and the scattering of the Israelites among the nations, which happened when Israel was scattered by the Assyrians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, the godly and the ungodly Jews survived together just like there were always pebbles found with the grain. Tracking with me so far? 
The illustration was clear to Peter because all the wheat was sold that was sold in the marketplace in Peter's day had pieces of chaff and dirt and pebbles mixed in with it. Just as when wheat is sifted in a sieve and pieces of dirt and chaff show up, Satan was demanded to be had demanded to be able to pressure Peter until a lot of unwanted stuff showed up in his life. But Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail and that no chaff that no or pebbles would ruin Peter's life. See, Jesus was warning Peter that Satan's desire was to tear him apart, to shake his face so violently that he couldn't function anymore. He attempted this after Peter's denial of Christ. And he used the same tactics centuries before by attempting to materially, emotionally, and physically destroy Job, if you remember reading in the book of Job. And he shook David to the core during his adulterous and murderous affair with Bathsheba. And he wants to do the same kind of thing to you and to me. He wants to tear us down one spiritual brick at a time, violently shattering us to the point where we can no longer function by faith. And the danger is that often we do not recognize his strategy. Too often we only see him working in the obvious places and forget that he's crafty and he's deceitful. We should not be ignorant of his schemes because he's constantly striving to become more and more seductive, especially with believers, because he knows that we're looking for him. At least we should be. He's not going to attack us head on most of the time when we're prepared for him. Satan may be many things, but he's not stupid. He's going to weaken us by hitting us from every subtle angle imaginable. He will linger almost passively. And then at the point when we are the weakest, he'll spring into action. He'll grab us and he'll shake us so violently that we come apart. What we need to better understand is how he works. What are his strategies? What are the things we need to be aware of right now in order to stand firm against him? These are the things which we must be seriously concerned with. That's why Jesus warned Peter. That's also why Peter later in his ministry saw the need to warn you and me. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter wrote, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. The Living Bible gets to the, the real heart of it. I love the translation here or the actual paraphrase here. It goes like this. Be careful. Watch out for the attacks from Satan, your great enemy. He prowls around like a hungry, roaring lion looking for some victim to tear apart. Stand firm when he attacks. Trust the Lord. And remember that other Christians all around the world are going through these sufferings too. Peter knew from experience how imperative this was for us to get a grasp on. So he says, look, wake up. Wake up, get serious about your enemy because he wants you. But, Peter says, resist him. Resist him. And before we can resist him, however, we must understand something about his methods. Stands to reason, right? 
We must understand that our enemy is extremely strategic in his seductions. The best place to discover how this enemy seeks to ruin us is, in my opinion, in the account of his attempt to disrupt and destroy the life and ministry of Jesus himself. So, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, if you would. Matthew chapter 4, this is going to be our main text this morning as we begin to unpack this. But there's no doubt about it, Satan's seductions are cunning and they're strategic. One of the first things we need to understand about his seductive strategy is that, number one, he's got selective timing. His timing is very selective, okay? Follow with me as I read a little bit of the context here, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, answering, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. But after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Here, by the way, is one of the most beautiful and powerful evidences of the Trinity in the entire Bible. God the Father speaks audibly from heaven and indicates his intense love and profound pleasure on his Son, Jesus Christ. We're introduced here to God the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending upon the Son to anoint and empower him for the ministry that he's about to embark upon, which will eventually impact the entire world. And then we're also face-to-face with Jesus Christ, God the Son, in physical form, our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All creation now here in this text is seen under the authority of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And in verse 17, the Father expresses his pleasure in Jesus of chapter 3. Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Why was the Father pleased, do you suppose? Why was the Father pleased? Because Jesus was doing the Father's will. Because he always did the Father's will. You want to please your Father in heaven? Do you want to please God? Find out what he wants you to do and determine to do it. Do God's will. So many times you hear people say, it's so hard to know what to do. So hard to know. Listen, friends, let's be honest with each other. For the most part, you and I don't have a problem with knowing what is right to do. What we have a problem with is knowing, is doing what we know to be right, right? It's not knowing what is right to do. It's doing what we know to be right. There's a difference there, big difference. Our problem is in the doing, not necessarily in the knowing. Pleasing God and doing his will, however, will not shelter you from temptation. 
They didn't make Jesus exempt. In this text, we have a, a perfect snapshot of how strategic Satan's temptations really are. Notice the selective timing of his temptation, of this temptation. Number one, the first thing that he does is he attacked in the midst of a powerful spiritual experience. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Mark's gospel says that after the glorious statement of his father's good pleasure, immediately, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. That's Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. See, Jesus had a test to undergo. The temptation of Christ was pivotal, for without it, we would not have a Savior who could sympathize with our weaknesses. Through this intense and very real experience of Jesus, we now know we have a Savior who understands our lot, who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, says Hebrews 4.15. Amen? Now, Matthew seems to suggest here that the Spirit led Jesus into the desert with the express purpose that he would be tempted by the devil. Does that strike you as a bit, like, unnerving? That God, the Holy Spirit, led Jesus into the, into the desert to be tempted by the devil? Some of us might have problems with that, but listen, God sometimes allows trials and temptations into our lives in order to test the quality and the sincerity of our relationship with him. They're part of God's plan to perfect us as his children. While God never seduces men or women to do evil, he sometimes allows us to endure Satan's attacks, yet he always provides us with the way of escape. Always. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says that. But while Satan fully intended to lead Jesus into sin and disobedience, disqualifying him as a perfect sacrifice, God demonstrated through the trial that Jesus was indeed worthy to become the world's savior. Temptation from the enemy seeks to deceive and destroy, but tests from God are designed to build faith, not to derail faith. So through temptation, the devil aims at evil ends, but leading people into sin but through tests of faith, God seeks our ultimate good, making us aware of true spiritual character. God tests, but Satan tempts. And he often does it on the heels of great, powerful spiritual experiences. John MacArthur writes this. He says, one of the, quote, one of the great truths of life from which even the Son of God was not exempt on the earth is that after every victory comes temptation. God's word warns, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So when we are most exhilarated with success, we are also most vulnerable to pride and to failure, unquote. You know, we often think that Satan attacks us when we're down and when we're depressed but he doesn't always do that. He knows that at the point of a powerful spiritual experience, there is a vulnerability to pride. Jesus' baptism was an incredibly powerful experience as you read about it. God the Father and the Holy Spirit 
showed up. That's pretty powerful. And God made it known in no uncertain terms that he was pleased with his son, Jesus. But then the devil stepped in. I once heard a great message in which that statement, then the devil, was prominent and repeated throughout the whole entire sermon and it has stuck with me ever since. So you're going to hear that phrase quite a bit today. Have you ever noticed that pattern in your life that after a great spiritual victory, all of a sudden you're under attack? Every time we do a baptism, every time that someone comes to Christ and they desire to be baptized, first thing I tell them after their baptism, don't be surprised if in the next week you're attacked by the enemy and you start to question your faith and you start to feel really bad about the decision that you just made to be baptized. Now, that's not to bring doom and gloom on a celebration of baptism, but what it is is to be realistic because it happens more times than you, and I care to even remember or even to talk about. Have you ever felt that spiritual high after taking a bold stand for Christ and then the devil attacked? How about after you've shared a great spiritual victory in your life with your small group? And then the devil snares you with a sin that you thought you had under control. Now, I don't care how spiritual you are or what great thing for God that you've done today. If tomorrow you're not alert to the enemy's schemes, then the devil will get you every single time because his seductions are strategic. It's happened to me after a service when I felt God really seemed to minister in that place. I'm feeling all good about the message and then the devil. Many of you have felt it. After finally getting your friends to come to church or you feel good when you think they're almost ready to receive Christ and then the devil steps in, gets them and you off track. See, his timing is super selective. He not only attacked in the midst of a powerful experience here for Jesus, but he also attacked in the midst of beginning a great personal endeavor. Jesus' baptism signified the beginning of his public ministry in the Gospels. For 30 years, Jesus lived in, in, in the town and worked as a carpenter, and now as he begins his personal ministry, the most vital the world has ever known, then the devil, Right? I want to tell you, friends, that the devil wants to disqualify you right at the starting line, right at the beginning. If he can do that, he knows that you are no threat to him. Why do you think Satan works so hard on children and teens and newlyweds and young pastors and new believers and new ministries that are just being launched because he wants to disqualify them by sidetracking them from the main issue right out of the starting blocks. What's the main issue? Doing God's will, right? Jesus did that. Jesus knew, and Jesus was the master at it. So let me ask you where you are right now. At the beginning of a new phase of ministry in your life, 
Maybe God's kind of moving you in the direction of something. Maybe he's calling you to do something in the middle of this so-called pandemic. Or what's he trying to do with you? This is a whole new day for the church. It's a whole new day for ministry in the church. And we're racking our brains as elders trying to figure out what direction God wants to move us in now because it's clear that it's not going to be the same again. What's the main issue? Doing God's will. Are you prepared to be nailed by the devil? I'm not asking for confrontation, but I'm well aware that one may occur. The truth is, is that the devil is unrelenting in his attacks. His attacks hit hard. They strike deep. And they threaten to destroy because his timing is selective. He attacked Jesus in the midst of a powerful spiritual experience. He attacked Jesus in the midst of a great personal endeavor. And he will do the same thing to you and to me, to your family, and to this church. His seduction is strategic and his timing is selective. But it doesn't end there. He attacked Jesus in the midst of a great physical and emotional exhaustion. Look at verses 2 and 3 here. And after that, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, following this intense time of prayer and fasting, 40 days, Jesus was about to embark on the mission for which he had been born. After 30 years as a Galilean carpenter, he was making a midlife career change. Any of you done that? Or about to do that? You see? And then the devil. Then the devil intruded into that. We react differently to temptation when we're physically and emotionally drained, don't we? Some of us find that we're weak when we're under too much pressure... Others find out that they're weak when they're not under enough pressure. Unlike us, our enemy is very, very patient. He's willing to wait it out, hang around, really kind of do nothing until we're at our weakest point. Notice what verse 2 says here. After, underline it, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. The devil didn't attack Jesus during the fast. That was when Jesus was least vulnerable. It was after the fast was completed when he was physically hungry and emotionally spent after an intense, intense time of spiritual focus. Friends, please beware. Satan has messed up many a godly servant at the point of physical and emotional exhaustion following intense ministry. Elijah is a primary example of that. All you got to do is sometime this week, take a moment and read 1 Kings 19. Because it's when we are physically and emotionally weakest that our spiritual and moral resistance is easy to compromise. When you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're lonely, when you're sick, you tend to be more susceptible and vulnerable to anything that may bring you relief, and then the devil. 
That's when you need to stay away from your computer. You know, the stats on the increase in, in addiction and porn usage during this COVID-19, right up in the air. That's when you need to stay away from the man or woman at work who seems to understand you better than your spouse does. That's when you need to pick up your Bible and put down the drink that's bringing you such comfort. And on and on it goes. The first thing we ought to remember about the enemy's strategy is that his timing is very selective. The second thing is this, that his tactics are very systematic. His tactics are systematic. Verse 3. Follow with me as I read down to verse 10. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Notice the systematic approach of the evil one against Jesus. You and I both know that Satan will not easily give up, right? Am I right? He has a systematic approach to temptation that he has employed since the very beginning of time. And he's still using those same tactics today. Why would you think that he would do that? I think we'd be wise to his schemes by now, right? Why would he do that? Because they work. That's why. In this passage, the devil systematically approaches Jesus on three main fronts through which he attempts to seduce Jesus into sin. Rest assured, he will utilize the same exact tactics on you and on me. What are they? Well, let's look at them. First one is this. He tempts us to get us to depart from the will of God. To depart from the will of God. That's in verses 3 and 4. Again, the tempter came and said, if you're, if you're the son of God, command these stones become bread. And Jesus answered him. Satan's temptations are not only perfectly timed, but they're perfectly aimed. He attacks Jesus by appealing to his circumstances. Jesus is not the only hungry one here. Satan is equally hungry. He was seeking to devour Jesus. In 1 Peter 5, 8, that's what it says. Be careful. Watch out for the attacks from the devil, your great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone, what? To devour. If you are the son of God, 
he says. That's an interesting phrase because it's not really a statement calling into question Jesus' position as the Son of God. It's actually meant to be a taunt. Literally, the statement should be properly translated this way. Since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Since you are the Son of God. Well, Satan knew he was the Son of God, and Jesus knew he was the Son of God. God said so in verse 17. Behold, a voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Since you're the Son of God, turn the stones into bread. Satan was daring Christ to capitalize on his identity. Author Ken Geyer says this, he said, the temptation is not to make Jesus doubt himself. The temptation is to make Jesus depend upon himself. That's an important statement. Jesus was indeed the Son of God, and he could have turned those stones into bread, but he would have given in to his circumstances and departed from what God wanted. He would have used his own power to serve his own selfish ends. Isn't that our temptation too? Isn't it what the devil attempts to get us to do all the time? Instead of waiting on the Father to provide for Christ's needs, the devil suggests that Jesus do it himself. After all, there's nothing wrong with eating when you're hungry, is there? It's not sinful, is it? And Jesus surely had the power to do it. Why not satisfy himself? Why should he starve in this wilderness? It is, mark this now, it is absolute trust and submission to God's will that Satan is out to shatter. That's what he's out to do. He wants to totally derail you from that. Why should we wait for God when we can easily get what we want when we want it. We are so accustomed to instant gratification that we have a hard time seeing what would have been wrong with Jesus doing what was suggested here. What Christ did was prove that he was not interested in satisfying himself, but in satisfying his Father first. If Jesus had caved in and got himself out of this situation, what might he have done in the Garden of Gethsemane or on the cross when Jesus said, remove this cup from me? Jesus could have removed it himself. But what did Jesus say? Not my will, but yours be done. Satan didn't get him to depart from the will of God in the, in the beginning of his ministry, and nor would he do it at the end of his ministry. Christ, as Chuck Swindoll wrote, passes up the tempting bread of immediate satisfaction for the more lasting food of obeying the Father, unquote. Jesus' answer to the temptation was to live by God's word and to do God's will. So he answers, it is written in verse 4. It's incredibly significant to me that the first recorded statement of Jesus as he began his public ministry is an assertion of the absolute authority of Scripture. I love that. The first recorded 
statement of Jesus as he began his public ministry. It is written. Is there any doubt as to the primacy of the word of God as it relates to a person's life or ministry? These words of Jesus should dispel that if you have any question. My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus later said that on in his ministry. His philosophy never changed from that. It was always God's will first, not his own. And he was God, but he willingly submitted himself to the Father's will as God in the flesh, taking on our human flesh. No matter what the circumstances, he said, your will first. And it begs the big question for all of us as Christ followers, is that true of us? Is it true of you? Is it true of me? Because sometimes we convince ourselves too easily that something is God's will, when in reality it's our own desire for immediate gratification. Instead of waiting on God to work it all out, we attempt to do it ourselves. And then the devil... Then the devil steps in. Don't be ignorant of his schemes. He seeks to get us to depart from the will of God. And then secondly, he tempts us to doubt the word of God. Verse 5, then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. It said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. See, Satan turns, it, turns that word of Christ right around and throws it right back at him. This is what's written, Jesus. It's written that he'll command his angels concerning you. On their hands, they'll bear you up so that you will not strike your foot upon a stone. So throw yourself off. He says, you know, if you're so hot on living by God's every word, then Jesus, why don't we just test it to see how much you really believe it? Look at verse 5. Then the devil, right? Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, 45 stories above the city. And he dares him not only to prove God's word, but some believe to reveal himself as the one and only Messiah by safely jumping off the temple in this sensational and miraculous display of power before everybody. Surely the Jews would then know that he was indeed the one sent by God to redeem Israel, right? Grand entrance, beginning of his ministry. What an incredible start to a ministry that would have been. Big entrance. The Jews were, were awaiting this very thing, according to one scholar. On the top of the roof, there was a stance where every morning a priest stood with a trumpet in his hands, waiting for sunrise. And at the first sign of light, he sounded the trumpet to tell men that the hour of morning sacrifices had come. What better time for Jesus to leap into the temple court and absolutely amaze everyone? In one act, Jesus could have bypassed all the questions, all the skepticisms of the religious establishment during his ministry. After all, hadn't Malachi prophesied these words in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1? Quote, the Lord will suddenly come into his temple, unquote. Satan taunted Jesus by even quoting Scripture to him. In verse 6, 
Now, does that surprise you, by the way, that Satan uses Scripture? It shouldn't, because Satan probably knows Scripture better than you do or I do. The problem is, is that he manipulates and subtly misapplies that Scripture any way he wants to. This quote is from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He conveniently leaves out, however, certain set of words. He leaves out the words, quote, to guard you in all your ways after the words concerning you. According to the psalmist, the promise of protection upon Jesus or was given only to the one who walks in obedience to the will of God. So if Christ had departed from the will of God, there is no guarantee that this scripture would have applied. If you back up and you read the greater context of Psalm 91, it begins like this. In verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. You see, if Jesus would have jumped, he would have been challenging God to validate whether his word was indeed true. But total trust is in something never has to test its trustworthiness. Can I say that again? Total trust in something never has to test its trustworthiness. Only doubt puts God to the test. Furthermore, had Jesus jumped, it would have been an act of presumption and sensationalism. Jesus recognized this temptation exactly for what it was. He had no doubt that God's word was truth. He didn't have to test it. He was the word of God, and he was the truth. He didn't need to rely on sensationalism to succeed in his ministry. Jesus again responds with scripture. In verse 7, Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Let me ask you, do you believe God's word to the point where you don't have to test or tempt God to act in proving it? Satan strategically and systematically tempts us to depart from the will of God, to doubt the word of God, and then finally, thirdly, this category, he attempts to divert our worship away from God. That's verses 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, all these things I'm going to give to you if you fall down and worship me. The first two temptations were almost incidental to this one because this was the big one. We can usually see those things coming, the first two, but this last one is the one that subtly slays us, doesn't it? This is what Satan wants from you more than anything else. He wants your loyalty. He wants your compliance. He wants your acquiescence. He wants your worship. You're saying, I would never worship the devil. Every time you and I succumb to the devil's temptation to sin, every time, Rather than submit ourselves to God's word, you know what we're doing in that case, in that instance, and I do it and you do it when we sin? We attribute more worth to him 
than we do to God. And what is attributing worth to something? What's the definition of that? Worship. Because we end up serving his ends rather than God's purposes. And friends, the scripture is very clear. You cannot serve two masters. We can't. Let me just clue you in on something a little bit. Might become a little bit unnerving to you. Satan doesn't expect you to participate in a black mass in order to gain your allegiance. All he needs to do is to get us to bypass God's will. That's all. He offered Jesus a shortcut here to bypass the cross, the scepter without the suffering. All he had to do was simply turn his back on God for one split second genuflect in Satan's direction. That's it. Nothing major. One little shortcut and Christ would be king without the cross. But Christ would not submit to that. Thank God. That one small step from the Son of Man would have resulted in one gigantic fatal fall for mankind. It would have been irreparable, irreversible, and thank God the Father that Jesus would not compromise, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, because it's one God, Jesus would not compromise. But how often do you and I You know, you and I attempt in the same exact way. A shortcut here, compromise there. How often does Satan actually simply ask us to wink at God and bow to the world? And how often do we willingly submit to that? Again, one pastor lays it out plainly. He says, he tempts each of us in the same way. Why set your standards so high? What's the use? You can get what you want by cutting a corner here and shading the truth there. Why wait for the heavenly reward when you can have what you want now? Self-will is Satan's will, and it's therefore, by definition, the opposite of God's will, which is for us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, right? Satan is a counterfeiter. He offers what seems to be the same as what God offers, and his price is much cheaper. It's like buying a bad watch on the corner of New York City, right? Looks like a really nice watch, but then it doesn't work when you get it home. That's what Satan does. God wants you to prosper, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Satan asks, well, I'll give you prosperity a lot sooner and for a lot less. Just turn your head a little at the questionable practices. Give in when it's advantageous for you. Don't be a prude. Follow what the rest of the crowd is doing. The basic argument is always a form of the idea that the end justifies the means. But Satan is also the father of lies, remember. What he really demanded in the wilderness was Jesus' own soul. That's what he was getting at. And Jesus saw right through it. Right through his cunning, seductive strategy, 
all of them, strategies. He knew that Satan's price is always higher than he leads us to believe. Let me say that again. Satan's price is always higher than what he leads us to believe. He knew that his promises were always less than he ever delivers. Do we know that? Satan's timing is selective. His tactics are systematic. His goal is to get you and me to depart from the will of God, to doubt the word of God, and he wants to divert our worship away from God. But he can be silenced. He can be silenced. Jesus fed up with this game, dismissed him again with the solid words of Scripture. Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil, what's it say? The devil what? What's it say? The devil left him. The devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Praise the Lord. So James chapter four, verse seven says this. So give yourselves completely to God. Stand against the devil and the devil will run from you. We're never told in the scripture to flee from the devil. We're told to flee youthful lusts, all those kinds of things, but never to flee from the devil. We're told to stand firm, to submit ourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How can we resist the devil? How can we stand firm against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life? Because that's the avenues in which Satan attacks us. Well, that's our topic for next week, and we'll unpack it then. Otherwise, we'll be here all afternoon. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for exposing the tactics of the evil one in your word to us. You gave it to us for the very purpose that we might understand, that we might be able to apply it to our lives, that we might be able to see it coming from a mile off. And you also give us the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to resist, to stand firm and watch the enemy flee. It's not easy, and we certainly can't take a high-handed approach to it. But Lord, we can take an obedient approach to it as we submit ourselves to you. So protect these, all of these, Lord God, here today in the coming week. As the temptations approach us, may we see them for what they are. And through prayer and the power of obedience and the Holy Spirit's leadership, may we stand firm and do your will, not doubt your word, and bring glory to your name. For Jesus' sake I pray, amen.